0: Happy Thanksgiving, uh, but even as I, as we offer cheerful greetings around this time of year, we're also mindful of the fact that this can be a really hard season for many. Uh, so as we turn to God in prayer to ask for his help um, in the hearing and the speaking and the living out of his word, let's also pray together for, uh, for those in this room, those a part of our congregation, your own families, for whom this is a really hard season. So let's, let's turn to God. Prayer together. Father, well, we really are thankful for so many gifts of grace from your hand. We recognize that all the good things that we have are from you. We're thankful for your work in building this church, for this faith community, for a place to gather on Sunday mornings that is warm and dry and safe. After for your ever present care for your people in all things, God, we are grateful. Teach us to be a more thankful people. I also ask that you be near to those who feel the loneliness and grief and loss during this time of the year. You know the hurts, the regrets, uh, even the brokenness in this room this morning. And so we entrust those burdens to your wise and loving care. We're grateful for your word, God, I pray where I say my own things that they would be forgotten and would fall away quickly, but where I speak your word after you got I pray that you would do the work of teaching and convicting, the work that none of us can do on our own. We need you to speak to us this morning. So I pray that you would do that work by, equip us by the power of your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there aren't many things worse in life than waiting. I'll admit it, I hate to wait. Um, I had a bad internet connection the other day. I got through my laptop through the window. See that a package is going to be delayed. It's like, what does that even mean? Or standard shipping. Uh, does anybody use standard shipping anymore? No, I can't even imagine it. Right? We hate to wait for things. Kids, talk to me. Do you guys like to wait? Do you like to wait for anything? No, it's awful, isn't it? It's the worst. Uh, dessert? Sorry, got to wait. Want to ride that ride? Nope, got to be at least this tall. Wait till you're taller. Wait till you're older, right? We hear that all the time. There's so many things we have to wait for. Uh, in fact, a few years ago, the New York Times um, called Waiting, the Drudgery of Unoccupied Time, in an article titled, Why Waiting in Line is Torture. Uh, it's a fascinating article uh, about the psychology of lines, of waiting in line, the thesis is uh, that humans are waiting is so bad, in fact, that we succumb to the impulse buys, you know, all the stuff there at the checkout. Uh, we, we succumb to those impulse buys at the tune of five Um, billion, not million. Not the article says this quote The tabloids and packs of gum offer relief from the agony of waiting. The agony of waiting. We've all felt that, haven't we? Kids, right now, you're thinking, yes, I'm feeling that right now. Wait until this thing's over. But not just ag- the agony of waiting in online, right? We, we wait for so much more than the checkout counter. We wait for that job come finally we, we wait for a spouse we wait through infertility or the adoption process we're waiting for middle school and then we wait for high school and then we wait for for the acceptance letter and then for graduation from college we wait for the diagnosis and then for the cure for a decision just for some justice finally we wait for a friend Waiting for the child to come back home. Waiting for things to turn around already. We're all waiting, aren't we? In some ways, that's what it means to be human, is to wait. And sometimes the difficult things in life last a long time. Some of you have been waiting for a while through some really hard stuff. It can feel hopeless if we're honest hope is a fragile thing that has as peaks and valleys, some days and months and years, are filled with hope for a better future, and others aren't. How can you and I keep a grip on hope, cling on to hope, in the midst of the agony of waiting? When the waiting feels like it's never, it's, it's never going to end. There's end in sight, or maybe it's extremely painful. That's our question for this morning. How do we wait in hope? What does it look like to to keep a grip, a hold on hope in the midst of painful waiting? Today's the last Sunday in our series uh, titled Life, A Task Too Big. Over the past couple months, we've been walking through the life of Jeremiah, uh, walking with him. This morning, we turn the corner into Advent season, starts next Sunday, Christmas time in the church, on the church calendar. And as we make that turn, we're stepping out of the book of Jeremiah, at least for this week, for most of this sermon, and into the book of, of Lamentations. These two books of the Bible are tied very closely together. Some scholars even attribute the writing of Lamentations to Jeremiah himself. It's unclear if that's actually... The case, the book is internally silent regarding its authorship, but it's right to read these two books together. And honestly, Lamentations is a bit, it's it's a bit of a forgotten book, it's tucked in between two huge books, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, Uh, no judgment if you have a hard time finding it this morning. And it's a shame because it's a beautiful book, it's not easy or tidy or neat, but it is beautiful, and our chapter for this morning, Lamentations 3, probably the most Popular chapter in the short book reveals that tension in a very powerful way. It's a poem featuring the voice of a lonely, afflicted man speaking and praying out of his intense pain, acting in many ways as a re- representative for all of God's people. So let's jump in if you've got a Bible, either paper or electronic. Uh, go ahead and turn to chapter 3, Lamentations chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. Much of uh, much of the text will be on the screen behind me. So look down to verse 16. We're going to sort of parachute into chapter three, uh, look back, and then walk our way through. So, so start of chapter or, uh, verse 16 through 18. The poet says this: He has made my teeth grind on gravel. That's a fun picture, right? He made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace i have forgotten what happiness is, so I say my endurance has perished, so has my hope from the Lord. Well, happy holidays, uh, welcome, good to be together. We're jumping right in, friends, and this, is, uh, this sounds pretty rough, doesn't it? We find ourselves squarely in the middle of this man's pain, where he is hit rock bottom. He's at the end of his rope, where life feels hopeless. He says, I have forgotten what the good life feels like. I don't know what happiness is anymore. Peace is left to him. He's got nothing left in the tank. And if you want a life that waits in hope, this is the starting point. So here's point one. You've got to start by acknowledging the pain of waiting. <laughs> Acknowledge that it's hard. Be honest about it, especially with God. Now, let me say, verses 1 through 15, we're going to do it quickly, because it's a lot here. They're an honest take on life's pain. These are not unguided emotional outbursts. In fact, they're thoughtful, deliberate, poetic cries that are uncomfortably honest. This man here is experiencing a wide range of sorrow. And like I said, we'll do a quick overview. Starting in verse 1, he's under the rod of God's wrath. He feels the pain of discipline. Sometimes our sorrow is a result of personal sin, and sometimes, of course, it isn't, and we don't have time to do an extensive theology of suffering this morning, but we can say this, all of the brokenness in this world, in your life, in your waiting, all of it is because of sin's destructive consequences. I know this kind of pain, though, specifically. In fact, I turn to this chapter regularly to give voice. To my own self, the self-inflicted pain of my own disobedience. Now there are more pictures here, packed, packed in. His pain is like darkness, verse two. Picture of isolation. His pain is physical, verse four. He says, "My skin and my flesh waste away. My bones have been broken." Verse eleven. He says, "He's torn to pieces and shot through with arrows. He is a target." For someone with a quiver full of arrows. It's painfully graphic imagery. Verses 7 and 8, his pain feels like bondage, like he's in prison, heavy chains. Verse 9, there's this futility, the pain of futility, his way is blocked, his progress is frustrated, he can't move forward. Verse 10, there's a bear and a lion waiting to ambush him along his way. If He does escape from this prison that he's in, there's a bear and a lion waiting right there for him. His pain feels like attack. Verse 14, he's the laughing stock of all people. He feels the pain of humiliation, of social rejection. He concludes in a place of hopelessness and despair. Verse 17, we already read. I've forgotten what happiness is. In many ways, the starting place for waiting and hope like the author of the poet here is acknowledging that is hard. And time and again, during the hardship and pain, God's people turned their eyes to heaven and let him know about it. Said hard things, asked hard things, cried, wept before him, complained to him. All the while waiting, waiting for salvation, for deliverance, for God to show up and do something. Waiting for God to be again who they knew him to be. Godly waiting doesn't bury its head in the sand to avoid sorrow. Nor does it wallow in it. We'll get to that in a minute. Godly waiting looks around with eyes wide open, acknowledges acknowledges the pain of waiting, and puts it before God in prayer. So a question for this morning. Are you being honest with God in the midst of your waiting? Are you pouring out your soul like this? We've hit on this point over and over again throughout this series because it's one of the dominant themes. When life becomes too big for us, it's a task too great for us. For whatever reason, our, our default responses often fall short. We blame God, we run away from Him, we hide how we really feel, we make simple assumptions about the cause, of our pain, we avoid, we turn away. But God wants something different. He wants us. He wants you. He wants me. He wants us to come to Him with the complexity, with the messiness, with the blame, with the questions. For going to hold on to hope and the waiting, we have to acknowledge that it's hard. So well, that's a starting point, not a finish line. And thank God we're going to move away from verses 1 through 18 quickly here. We need to move from despair to a place of hope. How do we wait with hope? If we keep reading, we'll see the poet make the turn, verses nineteen and twenty. So many turns. Says, "Remember my affliction, my wanderings, literally my homelessness, the wormwood and the gall." My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. He summarizes one through eighteen and says, "When I'm given unoccupied space in my thoughts, my memory drifts towards these sorrowful places." But that's not his only memory, and here's the term, verse 21. He says, but this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. This man's climb back to hope doesn't involve new circumstances. He's still awaiting deliverance. He's in the middle of it still. But his perspective shifts suddenly and surprisingly. How? He says, with a return. Literally, call to mind means return. He says, I, I have hope because I return to this. This I call to mind. I return to, and therefore I have hope. Verses 22 through 24. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. turns to praise even there in the middle of this doxology. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in Him. The author's journey back to hope begins by returning to God's faithfulness. Your sorrow is real and will sometimes be all you can see. That's precisely where the poet is. He says, I remember, I continually remember my sorrow. And when that's true, when you're struggling to hold on the hope, in the midst of waiting, in the midst of pain and suffering. Return to these truths. First, you can't exhaust God's loyal love. The poet calls to mind the covenant love that God has pledged to his people. And I love this. Uh, many of you, I, I think I quote the Jesus story of the Bible probably every time I preach. If you don't have one, you want to. But here's how Sally Wood Jones refers, refers to the steadfast love of the Lord. It's, it's actually the word in Hebrews hard to... It's hard to pin down perfectly in English. It means there's a depth of meaning there that we don't quite get. So Sally Lloyd-Jones translates it as God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. And when you read the Jesus story of the Bible, it's just traced all the way through. Because that's that's who our God is. His loyal love never ceases. It's all the way through the story of Scripture. That sounds like something worth hoping, doesn't it? God's never stopping, never giving up. Unbreaking, always and forever love. The poet is able to hope in the midst of his waiting because he's looking back to God's promise-making love that can never be broken, it will never run. Second, God's mercies are new every morning. In the midst of our waiting, we can often miss the myriad of ways that God cares for us, even when we don't deserve it. That's the idea of mercy. God was holding something we deserve it's bad for us. Our waiting offers us the chance to shift our perspective from seeing what we don't have to remembering what is new and fresh and there for us in our lives every single day. On Thursday, was Thanksgiving. Many of us spent time reflecting on what we're thankful for. And yet, we often miss the obvious. Like we're breathing. Like you had a meal. You have a god who loves you there are new mercies every day every morning that we ought to be calling to mind returning to even in the midst of the agony of waiting god's mercies are new every morning and third when you have nothing else you have god he says the lord is, is his portion which is inheritance language Verse 19, he laments his wanderings, which literally means homelessness.
1: He says, I have no other home.
0: I have nothing to my name. But when that is true, I have nothing else. I have my God. The Lord is my portion, my inheritance, my home. If we're going to have hope in our waiting. We have to return to God's faithfulness. We've got to call these truths to mind. In this exact passage, I've said this already, this this one has been precious to me throughout the years. And I commend it to you in your own waiting. Memorize it if you must. The Psalms also provide us with language for this practice, specifically Psalm 103. We heard it in the call to worship and in the, insur- the assurance. Just listen to verses 1 through 5. See if you can hear the similarities. The words will be on the screen. Maybe just let it wash over you, too. Bless the Lord, O my soul. All that is within me, bless his holy name. The psalmist is speaking to himself. Soul, bless the Lord. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love. There is steadfast love and mercy. Who satisfies you with good, so your youth is renewed. By the It's like the psalmist says, soul, listen to me. Listen up. Bless the Lord. Remember who he is and what he's done. Friends, we need to preach these truths to ourselves in the midst of painful waiting. Return to them over and over and over so that God's loyal love is as familiar to you as the pain of your waiting. So we want a life that waits in hope. We have to acknowledge that it's hard, and we have to return to God's faithfulness. We also need to trust that God is working in our waiting. Trust that God's at work. He's doing something good. Look at verse 25. It says, The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It's good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man to he bear the yoke, and You'll notice the word good throughout these three verses. This entire chapter is actually an acrostic poem where each stanza begins with with a letter, a certain letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It goes all the way through the Hebrew alphabet. and This triad of verses 25 through 27 uses the word for good each time. It's like the author is is offering a few wise words on waiting, and his favorite word is good, which is probably not our, our first choice, right? No one would argue that waiting is fun. This man, especially, but like a lot of things in life, it's the hard things that are the most formational for us. That are sometimes the best for us. Waiting is not pleasant, but it can be profitable. Uh, I love this poem from Robert Browning Hamilton. He said it like this: he "Said I walked to mile with pleasure. She chattered all the way, but left me none the wiser for all she had to say." I walked a mile with sorrow, and ne'er a word said she, but oh, the things I learned from her when sorrow walked. Her. Waiting may be the worst, but it certainly is not a waste, friends. And the author gives us a couple words of wisdom for how to wait on the Lord. We'll try to go through these quickly. First, it's good to wait actively. We often think of waiting as a passive thing, like, like standing in line doing nothing, or waiting, sitting in a waiting room, or something like that. But, but here we see a decidedly active word associated with waiting on the Lord. That is, seek. The Lord is good to those who seek him, to search, to those who search for him. We were at home this past weekend with family. Uh, the weather was beautiful, which meant the, back, the screen door uh, to the back deck was used quite a bit. In and out, quite a lot. Uh, including by our curious little toddler, Evie, and she managed to go out the back door, down the deck stairs, across the backyard, onto someone else's property without any adults noticing. We just somehow managed to do that. As toddlers can, and you can imagine my instant terror when I walked into the room and someone said to me, "Hey, we can't find Evie." Like, what do you mean you can't find Evie? It took me—it took a moment for it to register with me, but once it did, what do you think I did? I guy just parked it on the couch, like, nah, she'll come back. I'll just wait. No, I mean, I can't remember the last time I was filled with so much urgency just to do something, anything. I just run. I just I ran around the living room for a moment. Uh, like, what do you mean you can't find my daughter? I found her quickly, safe and sound, uh, climbing on a tractor barefoot across the way. And I was like, uh, please don't call anybody on us uh, after this got my heart rate up in a hurry. And the poet says, the Lord is good to those who seek him, who urgently look for him, who search high and low to find him, who investigate, inquire, who pursue, who run after the Lord. And when your heart says, I can't find God, don't go park it on the couch. It is good to wait actively on the Lord. To be faithful in the waiting. Second, it's good to wait quietly. It's good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord, which almost seems like the opposite of active, active waiting, but it's not. It's a posture of, of quiet, <laughs> and humble dependence on God. It's a good thing to quietly hope for God's deliverance from your pain, your suffering, which is hard to do, friends. When you're in the place of Jeremiah, at the, at the end of your rope, tired of waiting, it's hard to maintain a humble expectancy that God will deliver you. But the poet says it's good to wait quietly. And third, it's good to wait early. He says it's good for a man or a woman that, that they bear the yoke of their youth. Now, we talk about the yoke a lot at Christ Community, right? we understand it's a good metaphor for learning, for training. It's an agrarian tool where you, you literally link yoke an older, mature animal with a younger, undisciplined, rookie animal so they could learn from them. Maybe a modern example here would, would be dog training. Um, you don't train a dog to sit when they're eight years old, you? That's a bad idea, good luck with that. Uh, more like eight weeks old, right? The earlier you start the training, the better. That's the picture here. It is good to learn how to wait through hardship early. Learning to wait has everything to do with patience, trust, dependence, humility, contentment. All the things uh, that we adults, I mean, we all have that, all those things down pat, right? No. But that's the work that God is up to in our waiting, isn't it? These are the lessons we need to learn at every stage of life. And sometimes God is working in your waiting to shape you into a patient, faithful, dependent person. Trust that God is forming you in your waiting. So if we're going to hang on to hope in our waiting, we need to acknowledge the pain that is hard return to God's faithfulness. Trust that it's good for us, that he's at work in the midst of our pain. And finally, we need to cling to God's promises. Went down to verse 31. It says, for the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he caused grief, he will have compassion According to the abundance of his steadfast love, there is again. Yeah. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. This is literally the, the, the center of the entire book of Lamentations, which is significant in Hebrew poetry. This is the point that the author doesn't want us to miss. Right here. He says this: the Lord will not reject you forever. He will not cast off his people forever. A day is coming when his hand, which feels heavy now, will lift you out of your painful weeping and deliver you in compassion, in mind with who he is, his character. The poet here says, he doesn't like to make you suffer. He does not inflict from his heart. He doesn't take pleasure in your pain. His heart is compassionate, and he will deliver. That day is coming. I like Jeremiah if we're going to find hope in the waiting, we've got to keep our eyes fixed on what God has promised. Rooted both in his faithful acts, his great faithfulness, and who he is, his compassionate heart. Offing Tim, unpack the words of Jeremiah's message of the coming new covenant. Jeremiah 31, and two chapters later, Jeremiah 33, we read of the one through whom the new covenant will come. Verses, well, actually, you don't have to turn there, Jeremiah's verses will be on the screen. Verses 14 to 15 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David. He shall execute justice and Righteousness and the days are coming, Jeremiah says, when when justice and righteousness will finally rule, executed through the righteous branch from the line of David. Now, kids, this is a softball question. Okay? I'm gonna model it up for you. Whose birth do we celebrate at Christmas time? That's right, Jesus. He's called Jesus the Christ. The Messiah, which means the promised one, the one who is promised to come, is born in where in Bethlehem, which is the city of David. As an old king of Israel, David is Jesus's great 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 grandfather. Something something like that. Maybe not enough grades in there. Anyway, David is one of Jesus's ancestors, and we're told right here in Jeremiah that like new branches spring out of old roots, someone would come execute righteousness and justice. Someone who knew affliction, who experienced rejection and isolation, who knows humiliation, who understands physical pain better than anyone. Someone who knows the pain of waiting. The promised one would come, a man of sorrows, acquainted with suffering in his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus, the Messiah, the promised Savior, would come undo all the sadness in the world, and put an end to all suffering, an end to all waiting. And Jeremiah, of course, had to look ahead to the fulfillment of this promise. And you know what? He never saw it happen. Jeremiah died without seeing the Messiah come. What a beautiful mercy it is for us to live on the other side, to celebrate his coming the first time, to know the salvation of the Lord came through Jesus. And yet we still wait, don't we? For though our Savior has come, the enemy has not been defeated, not completely. So we wait in hope. We acknowledge the reality of our pain. We remember God's faithfulness on, on our behalf. We trust that he's working in the midst of our waiting to shape our character, our faith. We cling to the promise that one day Jesus will come again and finally complete the work of destroying sin and making all things new. And because of the promise, because of Jesus, we wait